Welcome to our wonderful Eurobliss Christmas special with bells on. Woo! Come on, share some. Ho, 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 oh, ho, ho. Amazing. What so good. Me? Not only is it a mouth watering festive feast that we have in store for you, it's also our 100th show. You know what that means? 300 bottles of Prosecco. That's what that means. And magic moments. <laughs> magic moments. <laughs> We've decided to celebrate our 100th Euro Bliss by looking at some magical landmark moments, songs that have unwittingly defined the show and helped mould it into the magnificent jamboree that it is today. Indeed, who was have thought way back in 1956 that Eurovision would still be going strong today and be the big burly beast that this has become? So, uh, yeah, with that in mind, we are about to embark on probably the weirdest playlist we have ever come across. I'm sitting here, of course, in this tiny soundproofed studio. Nobody can hear us scream. <laughs> Spit roasted in between my two favourite people, my lovely Juan, who's looking very festive today. Uh, thank you. Oh, and my lovely Mark, who is also looking very festive today. Oh, Feliz Navidad. Oh, she's off. And, uh, yeah, the mission is to get absolutely bladdered on this Christmas Prosecco and have a giggle. So stick with us. It's going to get very messy. We have all the standard Eurovision essentials here. We've got quiche. What's that? Halloumi, olives, hummus, tortilla chips, red wine and Prosecco, and um, tissues and wet wipes. So I think we are about ready to go. Are you ready for this? Oh, Let's yeah. go so, for it! Magical moment. So, uh, chronologically, we are way back in 1957. We're black and white, and all of us were born, but there was actually a lot going on in the 1957 show. It's the first contest to have just one song represented per country. In the first Eurovision the year before, there was two songs, so that's a rule that stands today. It's the first time we get to hear the voting as well as see the voting, which, of course, is a rule that stands today. And... Uh, it's also noted more so for the year that gave us the longest song ever, the Italian song, which was mercilessly and selfishly five minutes and nine seconds long. And it was a result of this that the rules governing the length of each song was tightened to require them to be no more than three and a half minutes initially and then later down to three minutes, which is, of course, a rule that stands today. So, interestingly, the studio version of this song is three minutes and 24 seconds, so they really managed to drag it out on the night. Uh, you see, as Eurovision fans, we are programmed to listen to a song that is three minutes long. And anything over, we can pick it up straight away, can't we? Even if it's like a millisecond. So, five minutes, nine seconds. This is Nuncio Gallo and Corde della Michitara. Let's see what you think of this. <laughs> Thank you. 
l'hanno accolta le stesse cose l'hanno attesa le stesse rose dolce sogno dagli occhi verdi che tornava troppo tardi troppo tardi per chi della mia chitarra se la mano trema sull'accordo se la musica si perde nell'indifferenza d'uno sguardo corda della mia chitarra perché vi fermate, perché non suonate voi sole per me? Suonate, 
thinking that the longer they're on stage the more points they're going to get <laughs> it's an extraordinary song that, that guitar intro lasts more than 50 seconds um, I mean actually once you hit the chorus you think ah finally um, we have the kind of body of a song here somewhere and then it sort of disappears again I mean <laughs> never comes back. I never comes back. Uh, <laughs> five minutes, nine seconds. Well, it's two minutes over, more than two minutes over length. But the funny thing is that the Italians still kind of don't get it because the San Remo festival final goes on to about half past two in the morning and you have to sit through about 24 songs. <laughs> so even though they were disciplined for being over length... Um, they're still doing it. They're sort of still doing yeah. it, you know. But anyway, it didn't do very well, did it? It got seven points, seven votes. It came six, I it think. came six. In, a bit. in those days, you did come six with seven points. <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually think it's a bad song at all. I like the, the different sections and the composition. It just It's just a never-ending story. It just goes on and on and on. Just when you think it's over... It starts again. Uh, yeah, from a from a competitive point of view, from like a song contest point of view, it just doesn't make sense. But I, I actually like the song. Well, 1957, even though it was Eurovision's second birthday, it was a bit of a landmark show. It also gave us the first returning winning artist to have a second pop. Of course, we have lovely Liz Asia, who won the year before with her friend. And she was sub- oh, quite a good singer, aren't I? Oh, beautiful. By the way, I just want to say, <laughs> while we're still on 57 before you go forward, the UK song that year was only one minute 53 seconds long and it held um, the record for the shortest song submitted in Eurovision all the way up to 2015. Finland. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But, I mean, how bizarre in that second year of Eurovision that here we have two members of the Big Five, one really going for it lengthwise in the UK. Not giving under, a shit. Yeah, yeah under <laughs> Maybe the Italians thought, well, you know, you've, you've gone under by two minutes, we'll have your time. <laughs> well, that evened it out, so the, the show was probably the same length. Mm. Anyway, uh, Liz Asti was subsequently come back in 1958. And she was last on stage, and this time she caused a little bit of a rumpus by singing a song in not one but two languages she hybridised, if that's a word, German and Italian. Couldn't you imagine that was probably an absolutely total head fuck for the time? Um, and that didn't, that kind of two languages didn't rule, didn't really catch on uh, for many a year till what, the 90s? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we're going to play uh, this song. It's called Giorgio. It came second, but uh, in my small world, this is more famed for scoring more points than uh, Nel Blu di Pinto di Blu. It What's came second? This came second. <laughs> <laughs> it got more points than Volare. What? So, uh, which is, of course, the best-selling Italian song of all time. So the lesson I here, way back in 1958, is that the best song doesn't always win. This is the first Eurovision song to be sang in two languages. (laughs) 
song to sing and she sounds like she's singing it on horseback but executed with great aplomb yeah i give it up for liz asia because she sang this very very well however <laughs> the song i mean what is happening it's kind of hilarious actually to think that this was probably considered good clean fun by some at the time hearing that this came second for me just like i am so happy that that world doesn't exist anymore you know what i mean no. uh, <laughs> but it definitely has like a deranged fun charm to it uh, like i've said in previous podcasts uh, it sounds like lunch recess at the insane asylum <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I don't think um, obviously Swiss and in Switzerland you have four languages: French, German, Italian, and Romanche. And I don't think Italian was Liz Asia's uh, forte. So, <laughs> so although the pronunciation isn't bad, but it's as though she opened her Berlitz Italian vocabulary book on day one at school and. 
but 20 words down that you might hear like risotto, chianti, polenta, vino. Vino, yeah, and and but Giorgio, I mean Giorgio, that it's like you know the classic Signore. Italian signori, and threw them all together, and with all these clippity cloppity, hop along Cassidy type um, equine effects, and there you have a song <laughs> that beats Volare into fourth place, Scandalous. Liz asked you there, mad as a hatter. So moving on to 1965 was. Uh, very interesting because that gave us our first winner that wasn't a ballad. We're not going to play it, but also in the same year, uh, something else very special happened from the Swedes who randomly decided to sing in English on the big night, which caused chaos and confusion and subsequently led to the introduction of a language restriction rule the following year. Now, I really should play this because it's a landmark song, but I'm not going to because why? I don't like it. So we're going to move on to the next year, which is 1966, where all the men still wore bow ties and suits and the ladies wore evening dresses. That is, until a 17-year-old girl from Norway came on stage wearing something called a trouser suit and she played her own instrument, a guitar, both groundbreaking for the time. And I actually saw a colour clip of this a couple of weeks ago. Uh-huh. Guess what colour? As a clear of lawns, trouser suits is in my mind they're green i always had it like as a dark blue and it barbie pink oh Oh. how disappointing (laughs) (laughs) anyway digressing eclipsing this we have a wonderful magic moment courtesy of the dutch we have the first black female on stage performing for the netherlands lovely millie scott flanked by her two novelty mexican guitarists but it wasn't just the color of her skin she did something very rad on stage. Any ideas? Something to do with the microphone? It was something to do with the microphone! <laughs> <laughs> she held a handheld microphone, which allowed her to do something called move across the <laughs> stage, which must have been very exhausting to watch for the uh, audience who were used to just seeing people just standing there. Let's have a listen to Fernando and Filippo, a.k.a. the Tong Tiki Tong Song. Ricotto, ti 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 ti
Vervat het lot op een heer. Op een nacht vindt hij zijn meisje niet meer. Zij ging s'avonds naar Filippo, verdween alleen uit San Antonio. Filippo, Filippo. Komt voor mij uit San Antonio. Obviously the live version. And what fascinates me about that performance is that she was black and she moved about the stage. You'd never had a white person <laughs> moving about the stage. Is that the black people showing their athletic prowess or something? I don't know. No, I, do, I just think that's probably a coincidence. But the thing was, it was a very vivacious performance and very cheeky. And the song was quite catchy. And and uh, with three votes to go, she had nul point. Uh-huh. I think it was the UK and Ireland that came to their rescue to give them a couple of points and stop them coming last. But leaving aside the attention on Millie Scott for a minute, what I thought was really sad about the direction of that song was that we had two guys there in sombreros and their big capes on, and they were sitting side on to the camera, (laughs) and we never saw their faces. We saw these shadowy, ghoulish kind of shapes there strumming away on their guitars, but it would have been a lot nicer to have seen all the performers. Their handsome Yeah, or whatever. But but it's like, you would in this day and age, you would never dream of, like, burying the performers Mm. like that in three minutes. Back to the camera. Mm. Not, Not a good move. So, like, me as, like, a, a Latin person growing up in Sweden, I have a little bit of a, a, a reaction to exoticism. Um, and I, there, I think there is a lot of that here. Like, there are two white guys in sombreros that have nothing to do with Mexico there. And she doesn't have anything to do with Mexico, but she's black. So I guess they just put them together in a kind of, like, you know, Novelty foreign way. song. Novelty and act, cross you know? their fingers and hope for the best. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, and I can only imagine the racism she was put through, like, you know, being the first black woman in this in this position. Um, so, you know, all credit to her. Uh, but so it's it's the first female soloist, the first handheld microphone, and perhaps also Eurovision's first WTF moment, because it is very much like, what the fuck is happening here on stage, you know? Uh, Especially her stage exit. Yes, the stage exit. Oh, and, and, and entrance. Yes. Yeah, but the exit is slightly more playful, I think, the way she just skips off there and goes up those stairs like that. And then back down again. Yeah, yeah. back down again. <laughs> but also the kind of clumsiness of the microphone lead, which you see swaying around all over Health the floor. Health and safety, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it is very Eurovision, very funny, and I actually love it because of that. I love you, Millie Scott, and love you're you, right, Scott. I think she would have scored more points if she wasn't black, but hey, that was 1966 for you. What happened in 1968? It was the first colour Eurovision Song Contest. Wow. A rule that still stands today. And in 1969, of course, we had the first four-way tie. So to try and avoid that rule, a tie-break rule was created at the time, so if there were more songs winning with the same amount of points they would have to be performed again, and then each national jury, aside of the ones who were actually performing again, would have a show of hands, which, of course, that never actually happened because the next time we had a tie break was 1991, and by then they changed the rules. Anyway, so 1970 gave us the first postcards, 
Can you believe it took them 14 years to think of something to introduce each songs with? And then in 1971, we had the first video previews, which allowed us to see and hear the songs more than once. How incredible is it that you think on Eurovision that you don't hear the songs until the night? But now 1971 came, and also with that a new rule abolishing soloists and duets. So the maximum rule of six on stage, which is a rule that stands today, was uh, declared. And the first country to take advantage of that was the Swiss, who brought three people on stage, a televisual feast. Was it worth the wait? Let's find out. That translates as... The hope of youth. <gasps> um, they increased the number on stage, but they didn't really increase the size of the stage. The little gated theatre in uh, Dublin in 1971 couldn't really hold more than three or four people. What do you reckon to that song? Um... <laughs> Silence uh, says it all. No, no I'm, a, I'm a sucker for nice harmonies, and there is something so cozy about this song. It's like a nice, warm, cozy song for the cold winter days ahead. Uh, it doesn't blow me out of the out of the water. It's or a bit anything. like Bovril, isn't it? <laughs> I would agree. Yes, but it's you're not... easily quite blown, aren't you? <laughs> uh, famously, anyway. Uh... Well, he is a sucker for things yeah. as well. Uh, As all London knows. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, 
it's not ama- amazing. It's comforting, like 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 Bovril, like hot chocolate, like something like that, like very basic but nice. Yeah, they went on to perform four times for Switzerland. Uh, this wasn't one of their better songs, uh, but they do have a feel of the Seekers about them. Um, that lovely family-friendly Saturday night, safe and sound. And it didn't do spectacularly well, but, you know, they broke the records by getting three people on stage, so well done, Switzerland. (laughs) And closely followed by the first quartet, two or three songs later from Sweden, who were, of course, the Family Four. And Sweden continued that theme of groups for a while with the uh, Family Four the following year again, the Nova and the Dolls in 73, and, of course, a quartet known as the ABBA group in 1974, who were the first group ever to win on stage at Eurovision, which brings us to 1975, a landmark year, the year which the current voting system was implemented. Each country was represented by a jury of 11 members, half of whom had to be under the age of 26, and they had to give a mark of one to five to all the songs, which were then tallied up at the end of the show and awarded in the point system that we are familiar with with these days. So the first time we ever get to hear Et enfin, douze points under the new voting system was donated by the Dutch to the song from, those no, to Luxembourg. So we're going to listen to Geraldine, a.k.a. Geraldine Brannigan from Ireland, who was absolutely not from Luxembourg, and um, it would be surprised me if she actually spoke the language as well. Luckily her song had an easy title and it was called Je me suis endormie en écoutant ta voix, en oubliant ma vie au creux de toi, au creux de toi. Je me suis réveillée, j'ai retrouvé ta voix. Je savais aimer, dis-moi pourquoi, dis-moi pourquoi. Oh, oh, oh. 
Jimmy Pal Mark. <laughs> oh, so um, scrolling through a few YouTube comments for this, I mean, this is the absolute prize. Uh, um, <laughs> this song reminds me of French lessons in my Irish secondary school. <laughs> Done badly. I mean, I don't want to be—I don't want to be a language snob. But if you're going to sing in French, you have to actually use your mouth and your lips and make French sounds and French vowels. And this was basically front, French sung in a sort of tourist, lazy, what I call sloppy British mouth mode. She's mm. Irish. But uh, it was the same effect. Actually, as a song, it's perfectly pleasant. But my goodness, it didn't deserve to do any better than fifth. Uh, je m'appelle Juan. Je suis artiste. <laughs> <laughs> Félicitations. Uh, anyway. Yeah, I mean, this was nothing new. I heard this a million times before. It's very Eurovision by the numbers. Standard classical ballad in Eurovision in song in bad French. That's it. Et la prochaine. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, of course, we know what happens when you get to the top of the scoreboard. But at the other end of the scoreboard, in 1978, we have a song that got no points under the new voting system that was originally formed to ensure that countries scored points. Not only were Norway the first country not to score points, they were also the second country not to score points three years later in the 1981 show. Uh, so we're staying in Norway and we find ourselves in 1986 and having the honour of hosting was Norway for the first time and winning their national final was Hito Stokan and his song Rumio that pushed the boundaries massively on the big night by doing something a bit different on stage. He was backed by a drag act called The Great Garlic Girls. Let's have a listen to the song.
personally, I think it's a great song, a great host song. But why are we including that in the magic moment of the evening show? Um, first LGBTQ plus backing group, and also the first time that royalty were ever present at the Eurovision Song Contest in the presence of, wait for it, here's my roll call, Crown yeah. Prince Harold, Crown Princess Sonia, Princess Martha Louise and Prince Harkin Magnus were all in the audience. Nothing better to you on a Saturday night. Yes. I mean, Eurovision's always been a popular place for queens, but here we had the real ones. <laughs> yeah. The only crowning I care about if it's in my pants. Hey! Thank you. Let's Mo- talk about Quan's pants. <laughs> Moving on. Do you like that song? Uh, um, yes. <laughs> but I, the best thing about this are the drag queens in the live show for me. Uh, I think it's an okay song, but it begs the question, where are all the drag queens for Eurovision today? Especially the UK has a great drag scene, and it would be amazing to see that representation on the Eurovision stage. It would be so much fun, and I would lose my mind. So that was 1986. It was 16 years later, in 2002, that the next drag act took part in Eurovision, which was, of course, the trio Sestre, who were chosen to represent their country, Slovenia. Anyway, uh, what happened next? Children, kinder, enfants, <laughs> bambinos. Fortunately, there have not been many bambinos in Eurovision. We've had John Jacques from Monaco in 1969, Desandra the Kim, who lied about her age for Belgium in 1986, but sadly for Europe's sweet children, the 1989 show was cursed with not one but two delightful children. Where's my little thing here? Where's the scream thing? Can you see that? Oh, I yeah. can't see that. Oops. We had an 11-year-old and a 12-year-old. Um. <laughs> you can't have kids singing against adults. It's absolutely not fair. Uh, and interesting to note, it took another 14 years for junior Eurovision to uh, hit the TV, so it meant that there was a whole generation of kids out there who lost the chance to sing for their country. But back in 1989, it was cuteness overkill with 12-year-old Gilly for Israel and 11-year-old Natalie Pack for France. So we're going to listen to the youngest ever lead vocalist on the Eurovision stage. And amazingly, once you hear this song, you realise why I say that. She was one of my favourites to win. Je pourrais pas vous dire mon âge, je pourrais pas écrire mon nom. J'ai grandi hors sauvage sur des écorces de goudron. Je sais pas d'où viennent les images qui sont collées à mes yeux. Ils vous montrent cette rage.
Thanks to you, Natalie Pack, that children were banned from Eurovision. <laughs> Forever. Well, I'm going to stand up in defence of Natalie Pack because I think for an 11-year-old to sing that well was pretty remarkable. I think the song is way more than half decent, unlike the performance of a little 12-year-old Gilles, <laughs> Gilles from Israel who sang Derech Hamelech which must go down in history, even notwithstanding the performance of Gemini in Cry Baby, as the most out-of-tune performance ever to oh, grace the Eurovision stage. It was bad. It was really bad. We'll listen to it one day. Oh, my we God. Won't. We won't. And you put your earplugs in. It, was, it wasn't was a bad song, but it was very bad. I, I, I don't know why you crucify the song so much. I think she, uh, I think she did very creditably, and I like J'ai volé la vie. So I guess your criticism kind of... Um, echoes my problems with this like putting children in adult situations and criticizing them from an adult perspective is not okay like I think listening to a child singing this adult ballad for me is cringe and uncomfortable I am not a huge fan of children in show business it often doesn't end well I'm actually not a fan of Junior Eurovision for me it's very Pad, beauty pageants, don't you? Hate it. I hate it. Uh, I, I mean, I know that there are there are entries that are very like playful and things like that, but there are also entries that are not. It's Little Miss Sunshine, absolutely. And I think sh- children should be allowed to play and express themselves and not be put to work on a stage to try and strive for stardom and success with adult standards. Uh, teacher, leave them kids alone. <laughs> Oh, end of sermon. (laughs) So the beginning of the 1990s, as we all know, saw many changes in the world. Berlin Wall Wall came down, the Soviet Union dissolved into several states and the Balkan countries became separated as a result of the Balkan War. So we've got lots of new countries wanting to join the party, therefore giving the EBU a massive headache as to how many countries they could squeeze into the show at any one time. So a system needed to be developed and they decided on this relegation thing which actually is quite bizarre if you think about it right now but it all came to a head in 1996 when there's this bizarre closed audio only pre-selection round to select which countries would qualify for that year and lo and behold Germany got relegated relegated from a show that they put huge financial input so that was pretty scandalous and that led to something called the formation of the big four the grand catcher or as is known now the big five the grand sank and it's all because of this song pint of blue by leon
version before, and I like that version more than the version I've already known. Come on, I mean, why did that not qualify? Hello, it was it was apart from Gina G, the most modern sound of that year. I can absolutely understand that Germany were angry that this did not qualify because this needed to be in the Eurovision. It is a crime <laughs> that it didn't qualify. There is something so charming in the live performance. It makes the whole thing very kitsch, very like oompa oompa, very German. It's so much fun and I am absolutely sold. The countdown life, I am all about it. What's weird though, if you can recreate in your mind what this scenario looked like, this audio only test so all of these jury members are all sitting in a room fuddy duddy jury members fuddy duddy jury members all sitting and then the big cardboard box arrives with a load of cds or oh, god forbid audio tapes, tapes, tapes audio <laughs> audio ninety tapes yeah or audio cassettes god forbid and they put them into this player or machine one by one and go oh you know that's, oh, that's germany too fast, isn't it that's too but so so no um attribution of points or anything for the performance or the artistry vi- visual stripped out completely I mean, it is a Eurovision Song Contest, but it is actually a visual as well as an audio. Absolutely. And you can't abstract one from the other and simply say, it's sound only, vote on that. So that was very poor, I think. Uh, OK, you have to slim the contest down, and then later on we got into semifinals and people were av- allowed to vote on the songs that they didn't want to pass to the final. But putting jury members in a room with a load of boxes <laughs> of audio cassettes is not the way to do it. It's laughable. Yes, Absolutely. Uh, and I was wondering whether we would have the Big Four concept if it wasn't for that song. Do you think it would have materialised eventually? Oh, I think the scandal of Germany not participating when they contributed so much money, I'd, I'd love to have known what the conversations were in late 1996 about all that, but I'm sure people would have said, if we're going to put all this money in, we need to be in that competition. And also with this song, if you look at the contest, this song would have done well. I mean, like this song needed to be there just also for the for the dynamism of the contest. It was very ballady, wasn't it? Certainly easier to dance to than the voice. <laughs> <laughs> but you can dance to the voice. I've seen you do it. Oh, I know, but that's only when I've had a lot of drugs, <laughs> you know, and hot chocolate. Statins. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 97 brought about change and change again with the introduction of something called televoting. Five of the participating countries in the 1970 show were technologically advanced enough to organise a televote. These countries were Austria, Switzerland, Germany, Sweden and of course the United Kingdom. Interesting to note that of course you can't vote for yourself but three of those four televoting countries gave the UK 12 points and Germany gave it 10 points. But 1997 wasn't always about Katrina and the Waves. It was more noted, as far as I'm concerned, for the song that came after Katrina and the Waves. The last song on stage, a song from Iceland. Let's listen to Paul Oscar. Yeah, yeah. 
that song as a landmark moment first publicly openly gay artist in the Eurovision Song Contest uh, do you know Paul Oscar came out to his parents at the age of 16 and before his voice broke as a little angelic choir altar boy a little falsetto child he was paraded <laughs> around his mum's sewing groups she, she ran women's sewing clubs do you know this? Women, because I did some little research on him. So and it was all her fault? Yeah, she took him round. I mean, what a sweet idea for this little gay choir boy going round. And she made him perform in front of all these women as they did so all their women. stitches and patterns. Um, but, you know, what's prophetic about this is Terry Wogan, who I would not put down in history as the most pro-European... Um, and pro- I mean, you know, he had some quite nasty things to say about the Eurovision Song Contest with its political voting and he, he was a bit Brexity at times in his comments and I was worried that on the whole LGBT thing he might be a bit sort of politically incorrect and not on side but what he said in the commentary was really interesting he said when this finished he said this is a kind of breakthrough this is one that breaks the mold of Eurovision the way that it's staged there's a whole new movement this is the moment that PVC freaks have been waiting for and I thought that was pretty smart of him, to be honest. Didn't he say something else about Channel 4? Yeah, he said, um, you know, shouldn't this be showing on Channel 4? And, <laughs> and uh, I hope that those stockings and mesh regulations have passed the European Commission guidelines. <laughs> it's, it's um, as I've said, I, melodically, as a piece of music, it's not the easiest for me as a fairly simple soul to, to access. But my goodness, when you see all the... And don't forget, 97 was a fabulous, fabulous year full of Fumi di Parole and Sentiment Sange of France and great, great songs. This, yeah, and Yeah, but this came last. And goodness, you know, even it if on, you... It was on stage last. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I beg your pardon, yeah, ambiguity there. It, it was on stage last, uh, but this was a kind of wow moment and what he did there with those with those women on that um, PVC sofa. 
Yeah, for me, it's one of the best songs in Eurovision of all time and one of the best performances of all time as well. It was really, really pushing the boundaries and taking risks and Eurovision of all places. I mean, not taking risks just for Eurovision, just in society in general. Um, I love how the movements of the performance and camera are slow and sweeping, counterpointing the beat and creating this floating feeling of suspension throughout. I can't say enough good things about it. I absolutely love it. I'd like to think he paid the way for General International the following year. And I've massaged him. No way! I have, yes. I think he was more grateful for the fact that I recognised him <laughs> than, than the massage itself. But bless him. Hi, Paul. Are you all right, love? Well, he just walked through your door in Archway and said, give me a massage. Yeah, right. <laughs> I wasn't working there at oh, that time, yes. Okay. I was working somewhere else. But he was there. In Reykjavik? No, no, no. no Shoreditch, actually. <laughs> Chariots. Uh, anyway. Oh, there. Yes. <laughs> We've all been there. It, it's not there anymore, though. No, it's just a beer. They bombed it. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> the concept of television was such a success the following year that all the countries managed to get together to, to, um, to do um, a televote, except Hungary, Romania and Turkey, who used... Uh, can, one... I, can I butt in? There's you... a point I wanted to add. Please you but... back in. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> very few countries in 97 had the televoting, but... Iceland, even though it came quite a long way down the scoreboard because of the bloody juries, actually, if you look at the televoting countries, it did exceptionally well. 89% of its votes came from televoting countries. Yeah, uh, so in, in other words, had televoting, had it been half and half, this probably would have ended in the top 10. So, and, and this is something we're going to talk about later with the change of voting rules coming up for 2023 Eurovision. But the. Because we've got our finger on the pulse. We have. Mm-hmm. And the. And the new importance of the televote, which is sweeping back for for, um, this uh, coming year in Eurovision in Liverpool, there's a little poignant moment here that says, actually, there are some songs where the public get it more than the jury. Mm. Mm. (laughs) Mmm. I think you've said that again. Mm. Mmm. 1998... I think was the year Eurovision became gay. It's the first time tickets were available to the general public. Um, and of course, which led to the absolution of the black tie and evening dress code. And of course, in 1998, the very, very, very last song ever to be played by an orchestra was the reprise of Donna International's Diva, because in 1999, we lost the orchestras. Uh, moving on a bit, landmark moments, 2003, UK getting no points for the first time. That was more hysterical, but 2004 was a very special year as far as I'm concerned. Eurovision was a two-day event. We won semi-final on the Wednesday and then a final three days later on the Saturday with 24 countries and winning the very, 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 very first semi-final was a country that doesn't exist anymore called Serbia and Montenegro and their song Lanamoya.
samo da li si sama Ljude koje ne čujem Lane moje noća sreni Nije važno bilo s kim Nađi nekog nalik meni Da te barem And his ad hoc orchestra of five people. Is that an orchestra? Mm. If Jelko says so, it is. He's still a bit Ruslan, didn't he? He did a bit Ruslana. You know, there's a funny little backstory about how this song came to be chosen because when they had the national final and Lani Moya was there, um, even though the country was at that time Serbia and Montenegro, the songs that were on the list fell into Serbian songs and Montenegrin songs. And guess what? The Montenegrin juries voted for the Montenegrin songs. The Serbian jurors voted for the Serbian songs. This was the only song <laughs> that actually uh, got over that divide, that, 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 that gelled and united. Oh, really? Yeah, both those countries. Because everybody else was being very, very, um, you know... Um, nationalistic. Nationalistic and, and voting for their own songs. So... Uh, this this is such a fabulous song. Because so, a couple of years later, with no name, because we were a bit angry, didn't it, with all the... Um... Yeah, there were only... It was only two... Was it two years when Serbia and Montenegro entered and then there was, was a it. split? Yeah. Just a charm. Um, but um, what what a figure this man has been in, in post... He's itching to say something, aren't you? Go on, itch. No, I, I just wanted to say, like, I will, you know, in, in my studio, there will never be anything bad uttered about Jelko Joksimovic. <laughs> in Sweden, you have a, I have a, a saying called Husgud. It means house god, you know what I mean? And Jelko Joksimovic is definitely one of my Husgud. Uh, no, I love this track. It set the template, I think, for what Eurovision uh, knew later on as the Balkan Ballad, you know? And it is fantastic. It is absolutely fantastic. This, this, one of my favourites. This set in train, uh, Leila, Bosnia 2006, Molitva 2007, Oro 2008, mm-hmm. um, Nidje Ljubljiv Stvar, very hard to say, in 2012. <laughs> and actually, Senora Dumar from Portugal yes. is actually a, kind of a Balkan ballad. Yeah. But OK, 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 from fair Iberia. enough. Iberia. 
But that was 2004. We're now 2022. It's 18 years later. Is that still relevant, the Balkan Ballad? Yeah. Oh, OK, because it's Eurovision. It's Eurovision, and it gets points from countries around it and always gives you a solid chance of winning. I think there was a novelty factor at that time about the newness of these countries and the kind of music which mm. garnered votes from the West in a way that we now become familiar with it. And I think it's harder for a Balkan ballad to be a serious uh, contender, which is why this year, when Serbia with Incorpore Sano did so well, it blew the whole Balkan ballad thing to smithereens and said, no, we're going to do something completely different. I also think at that time when... Uh the new countries were proving themselves. There was a hunger to prove yourself and a hunger to, to excel. And I think that's died off a little bit. I have some other landmark moments I'd like to scatter before we play our next uh, track, which... Uh... <laughs> You're all about the scattering today, aren't I you? I am <laughs> scattering, yes. Uh, 2006, Ireland. Brian Kennedy, the 1,000th song. Every song is a cry for love, although I think this song is more a cry for help. We are actually currently up to 1,643 songs as of 2022. 2006 was also the first year that the uh, 8, 10 and 12 points of the voting was announced. The 1 to 7 are already being placed on the scoreboard to save time during the very long voting procedure. And 2007 was the first year we had 42 countries 42 countries. I think the most we've had was 43, which was the following year in 2008. But we're going to focus on 2009. It's Georgia. We don't want to put in the first song to be withdrawn because of its supposed lyrics. And the band was asked to change the politically suggestive lyrics, but declined. So Georgia withdrew from the contest that was to be held in Moscow. And I wonder if the EBU would have the same view these days. Comments afterwards on behalf of Stefan and Free G. Here at Euroblazer, we are proud to say that we don't want Putin, and yes, his negative mood is killing the groove. Some people tell you the stories to drag it down to the knees. Negative. 
Say give me sexy, yeah. Give me sexy, yeah. Say give me sexy, yeah. Give me sexy, yeah. Sort of Poutine was one of those little um, bins you find in parks for dog shit. <laughs> Do you know, if they've been a bit cleverer with this, they might have got away with it. But if you think about the sheer arrangement of the words in English, we don't want to put in. I can't imagine any set of circumstances in which you would ever want to say anything like that exactly in English. And therefore it stood out as just being, oh, you're just trying to put Putin's name into an English song and get away with it. And therefore, I think the other problem they had in 2009, arguably the best song contest of the modern era in terms of the quality of songs... You know, this was really struggling to be counted amongst those that were being entered. So I'm not surprised that the EBU said no. But, Andy, you raise a point. You know, Jamala got away with 1944 in a very controversial way. Uh, in the present contemporary political climate, would this song be considered? It well might be admitted. I don't think so, because of the point you just made. I think 1944 could easily be about something else. It, could, it has a historic point of view that is me- not necessarily about today. Where this is, just like you said, it just feels like the whole song uh, revolves around a pun. Like a very obvious pun. And a bad pun. And a bad pun. And I don't I don't think this is a great song. I do enjoy this kind of like rebellious kind of Georgian nature of standing up to this regime or this specific person. Um, but other than that, yeah, I mean, it's 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 the quality isn't isn't that great. Yeah, it's, it's just not a more great fun. song. I like the idea yeah. more than the yeah. song. In 2013, ooh, this makes my blood boil. They change the way they choose the running order of the songs. The producers of the show, from then on to the present day, decide the order of the songs to make the show more entertaining and to give light and shade in the structure of the draw. There's going to be an element of manipulation. We're going to celebrate 2013 with the Finnish song, The Lesbian Kiss. Thank you to... What was she called? Christa Siegfrieds. Yes. yes, thank you. Spying on you undercover, drinking coffee with your mother. Am I getting closer? Baby, I feel like this in a skipping dinner to get thinner. Where is my proposal?
I think the first and only gay kiss, although I would like to have seen my During mood, a performance. Give Blanco yeah. one during this year's show. That would have been quite nice. The, the, what's lovely about this song is the backstory because she composed this uh, Actually, as originally to put pressure on her fiancé. Can, can I just bump back into that moment? <laughs> uh, actually, the first uh, same couple kiss that I can remember is 2000 in Stockholm, Israel. Uh, they had a, a kiss in the background. Uh, two, two of the performers. I think you were the only person who noticed that. Yeah, maybe, but it's, Which it's song? there. Which song? The, the one that came first, the one that everyone hated, but I loved. Uh, the, the, they were waving flags. Uh, not Palestinian flag, but something else. They were Israeli oh, uh, and... Uh, ping pong. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, oh, they had the same six kiss. Okay, oh, that was lost on me, that one. But, they had it kind of in the background. But Marry Me, you know, this was originally written to put pressure on her fiancé because he kept dithering about potting the question and he wouldn't and she thought I'm just going to participate oh in your revision and make him marry me is it really and that? then yeah oh and then God. what happened was she was so appalled by Finland's decision uh, politically to deny the opportunity for same-sex marriage she did a volt fast hmm. she changed the song to become a, a campaigning slogan for same-sex marriage and there's this wonderful moment at the end of the song where Graham Norton on the BBC commentary says Ah, oh, it's a woman kissing a woman. And if you have a problem with that, you ought to grow up. <laughs> and he says, the sound of the screeching car tyres is the sound of the fiancé heading north to the Arctic Circle. <laughs> so I am nothing if not a cheap whore, because in the beginning, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> in the beginning, I did not like this song. And as soon as it became about marriage equality, I loved it. <laughs> and I still associate it with that. So I am so happy when I hear it. It just totally won me over because of that. Yeah, a landmark moment. Well done, Finland. So 2015 was uh, another change in the voting system whereby it stands today where we listen to the jury votes and then they add on the televotes afterwards. Uh, and it also is the same year that a country called Australia first participated. Australia, if you don't know, is a small country that sits in between Belgium and Antarctica. <laughs> Do you know what's interesting? <laughs> uh, Australia always took the BBC feed of the competition all the way to from 1983 all the way to 2009 and then such was the popularity of it that they thought no we've got to send our own broadcast team we've got to send our own commentators so from 2009 they had an Aussie presence and and they do belong to the European Broadcasting Union mm -hmm. you don't have to be physically in Europe to belong to the EBU absolutely yeah. uh, and uh, Arab countries right belong yeah to the EBU. and they're an associate member but they were invited initially as a one-off. It was never intended that they would carry on participating, but such was the success of that first year that they'll be in it forever. And now they're struggling, though, aren't they? They're really struggling. You've got to laugh. You've got to laugh. Well, they started in those first two years with such two stellar performances that they've... Yes. They, start, they started on such a high, it's been hard to live up to that. But uh, 2015, I, I, I look back the other day at the three minutes of this and I say... This is one of the most slick, convincing stage performances of modern Eurovision. He's amazing. I think the whole thing was fabulous. Guy Sebastian was the guy who won everything in Eurovision. Should we wait for the comments to left? Yeah, yeah. This is Aussie's Robbie Williams. <laughs> Do it tonight again. <laughs> oh, 
everyone's got their problems. There's always something on your mind. Oh, but tonight we ain't gotta solve them. For now, let's leave them all behind. Oh, do what you want, you what you want. Do what you want, you what you want. Do what you want, you what you want. Oh, get on it, Ooh, get on it. Like it, it shows how good Australia was when they initially started. That the two first years, I think either of those could have won. Yeah, like, definitely. Uh, however, and I remember, I remember uh, listening to him live, and it being even better than the recording. Like he was so good live. However, I don't think the staging translated as well. On camera, oh, I liked it. It. I, it was super nice, but it was very static. It was just these lights, like he was on a street and with the hats, and then nothing else really happened. I think they they were learning it, you know, those first two years. The songs were amazing, the performances were amazing, the staging was good, but not like winner. Says, oh, sh- says an awful lot for the quality of the songs in 2015. 
And that, that that coming behind this in fifth were Monster Like Me, uh, Goodbye to Yesterday for Estonia. Uh, the more I look at 2015 as, as a year, the more I take my hat off to it and say, but this was a hell of a debut for Australia. Australia have issues, I think, with um, stage presentation, apart from Zero Gravity, which was amazing. The rest are a bit... Mm-mm. Anyway, uh, we've come to the end of our Magic Moments journey, and what a journey it's been, all the way from 56 all the way up to 2015. Now, what changes would you like to implement yourself, Mr Dowd? Well, we've got some important changes which have been foisted upon us by the European Broadcasting Union. Foisted. Um, because for those of you who haven't like reading, foisted on a Saturday night. Foisted. <laughs> no, that's fisted, love. Yeah, that was the joke. Thank you for explaining it. Um, as of 2023, there will be no jury votes in the semi-finals. Uh, and also, if you are watching Eurovision online from Bolivia or um, oh, I don't know, China, Sen- China, Qatar, Qatar Senegal, Timbuktu. Um, you will be able to register a vote in the rest of the world um, group. If which you have a credit card. If you have a credit card and you've, you've <laughs> managed to log in and pass the identity test. No, it's a whole revolution. Um, basically, the public are going to determine who goes to the final and the juries. I think this is a reaction to last year's jury scandals yeah. where Azerbaijan, San Marino, Poland... Uh, Romania and one or two other countries behaved disgracefully with their corrupt jury scores. Having said that, if that was bad enough to have juries taken out of the semi-finals, why are the juries still in the final and how is this not going to be repeated when the final comes along? That's another matter for discussion. But um, anyway, it's exciting. It's going to be a whole new, a whole new kettle world. fish, a whole new world. Um, I, I like that the juries are out. Uh, I think... The juries tend to vote a little bit boring as well, but I don't want it to be like all novelty acts, you know, on the final. So it would it would be good to have a bit of a, a, another perspective in the final, so that you know, so people know that they just can't bring crazy things like <laughs> in two thousand eight. <laughs> There've been all sorts of strange theories, like. Um well, if half of Latin America tunes in, Spain are bound to win. Uh, sorry, Spain aren't in the semi-finals. Everybody, they will already automatically be in the final. Oh, is it just the semi-finals? It's just the semi-finals. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh no, 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 no. But the global vote, yeah, it will. But they what, only get twelve points. They only right? get twelve. That's the point. It's just yeah. one of forty odd countries. Yeah. Um, so, but I think the key revolutionary concept is. It doesn't matter if you're in one of the participating countries or not. You will still be allowed to vote. And this is the another step towards the globalisation of Eurovision. And actually, it's, it's, on YouTube, some of the biggest YouTubers, Eurovision YouTubers, are from the United States. So I'm happy for that audience to get a chance to vote. It sounds like a lot of hoo-ha just for an extra 12 points. If they're going to add a global televote to the system, that will drastically change things, I think, massively. Um, but, you know, if it's not broken, don't mend it. It's, it's been running fine as it has been for the last few years. I thought we'd actually got to the point where we didn't need to make any more changes because it was perfect. I think the problem has been in the sh- shoddy way that they've approached questions of jury membership 
once you nominate and, and name who jury members are, you immediately make them targets for corruption. I mean, if everybody knows that Mark Dowd and, and, and Juan and Andy are three of the five UK jury members, and that's known for weeks and weeks before the votes, mm. then anything can happen. I mean, would you, you might take get, a bribe. You, of course, of course you not. Would. No, <laughs> of course I, would. I mean, you know, there are how many? There are only so many bottles of Prosecco available in the world. But um, it, it, it is a problem they haven't got round. And what they've done with this decision is to actually strike out the juries and go for the public. Mm. But I don't think this is the end of this. I think there'll be a revision of it in a few years' time as well. Martin Ostadal trying to put his stamp on the show, I think. Anyway, uh, around the corner, I think by the time we've released uh, this podcast, we will have missed the junior Eurovision on December the 11th. So, good luck, kids. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, the UK are going to win. Thank you for listening and helping us to make Eurobliss the almighty show that it is today, 100 years old. Here's to the next... 100 episodes. Merry Christmas to you all and tatty bye for now. Merry Christmas. Wait, bye. Here, you. Bye. No, say Merry Christmas. Feliz Navidad. Oh. Bon Noël. Joyeux Noël à tous. You damn.